church Bibles. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. The second lesson is from Romans uh, chapter 3 on page 1130 of the Church Bibles. Romans chapter 3, page 1130, beginning at verse 21, with the title Righteousness Through Faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. 
Would you turn back to our first reading, which was uh, Luke chapter 18, and you'll see the page number in the order of service, page 1052. It's a real help if you have it in front of you. Uh, I should have added in the notices, incidentally, that uh, we're having the second of our Alpha courses this Wednesday, and um, it's the wine and cheese Alpha. Um, so it's not too late to join uh, to ask your questions. It's a forum where you can ask the questions you've always wanted to ask. Just contact the church office. On the 31st of October, 1517, a protest was nailed to a church door, Luther's famous 95 Theses on Indulgences. And many would say that that single act was the spark that lit the explosion that we call the Reformation. And that revolution had a profound impact and its influence is still felt today. The reformers saw that the institutional church had wandered from the central beliefs of the gospel and this endangered everything. For when the heart of the gospel is lost, the Christian faith is lost. Men and women, like the Bible translator William Tyndale, were prepared to sacrifice their lives in order to restore to the church those essential teachings of the gospel. And these have come to us from the Latin as the five solas, the five alones. Salvation is according to scripture alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, and through faith alone. And so on this 500th anniversary, almost to the day, it seemed important to remember the Reformation, the title of our new sermon series. For if our church slides away from these vital elements of the gospel, we too will need another Reformation. And this, today we consider faith alone. The issue our two Bible readings address is this. Faced with two alternative ways of establishing a relationship with God, which is the right way? And our first reading from Luke's Gospel indicates these alternatives as Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's my first point this morning. Consider the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, page 1052. Now we have to reimagine ourselves back in time to the moment when his listeners would have first heard Jesus recount the parable. And we need to remember that the Pharisees were greatly admired. They were the spiritual elite and morally strict and keen to observe all the laws in order to be spiritually clean. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were despised and that was on both political and moral grounds. They were regarded as collaborators for collecting taxes for the occupying Roman government and they were notorious for corruption and dishonesty. Ask those first listeners who was close to God, and it was an easy-peasy question. It was the Pharisee. The Pharisee reveals his qualifications. Look at verse 11. He did no wrong, unlike the list of those he despised. He fasted twice a week and gave a tenth of all he got. By contrast, the tax collector had nothing to offer God. He stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, verse 13, God have mercy on me, a sinner. What is the point of the parable? Every parable has a main point. 
Jesus' conclusion would have shocked his listeners, for it was not what they would have expected. It was told, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Where did they put their respective confidence? The Pharisee thought he was acceptable to God because of all that he had done. But tragically, it led him to being self-righteous. The tax collector knew he had nothing to offer and so threw himself on God's mercy, conscious of his own faults and failings. Actually, it was a very disturbing story when it was told. And if you stop the person on the street and hold these two men up and say, which do you think is closer to God? I'm sure they would say, well, the man who did good things. Clearly. The Pharisee. For many today would also say, God accepts you if you've done enough good and avoided the obvious disqualifications that the Pharisee lists in verse 11. But Jesus' answer is the opposite to ours. And we know how disturbing that is. Many funerals, when I asked the bereaved what the deceased was like, the regular reply was, he never did anyone any harm. As if that was sufficient qualification for a relationship with God. Here's my second point, and it's about Paul. Paul also considers what qualifies someone for a relationship with God. Would you turn to our Romans reading? And that's on page 1130. Tim Keller, in his commentary, gives a very helpful example when considering how we can be justified before God. What qualifies us to be accepted by God? And he writes about our righteousness and describes it as our performance record, the sort of thing that would open doors if you were applying for a job. It would be your your resume, recording your gifts, your skills and experience, which meant that you were exactly right for this position. In fact, every other religion and culture believes it's the same with God. When the moment comes, we are to confidently, like the Pharisee, produce our moral and spiritual record, and if it reaches the required standard, you are welcomed as being worthy of a life with God. But now, Romans 3, verse 21, but now, as our passage is introduced, there's an entirely different approach from God, a divine righteousness the righteousness of God, a perfect record, is offered to us. And because of this and this alone, we are accepted by God. Keller identifies four lessons about how God's righteousness comes to imperfect, sinful people from our passage in Romans. Romans 3, 21 to 31. Here's his first point. It comes firstly through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 22. We receive this divine righteousness by faith, and our faith has one object, Jesus Christ. 
It's not a matter of how strong our faith is. It's not our faith that saves, but the object of our belief. Now I dislike flying. I do not understand how that great lump of metal can be suspended in the air, but as it takes off and I say a prayer, I have faith it will be so because of past experience. If I had an equally strong belief, as Keller says, that feathers strapped to my arms would do equally as well, however strong my faith, it is clearly mistaken. I have put my trust in the wrong place. It's what we believe in that counts. Here's the second point. God's righteousness, his perfect record, cannot be earned by our actions and efforts. We can contribute nothing in order to receive God's righteousness, and that's true of us all. We're all exactly in the same position. Look at verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All humanity is deeply flawed and damaged, We are not what God originally intended us to be. We live in a constant state of failing the standards of God's glory, his perfect standard. We cannot earn God's approval. We'll always fail to reach his target. And the picture here is from archery, just like an arrow in archery that falls into the ground short of the target. Now, you may be a bit closer to the target than I am, but we're all in the same boat. None of us hits God's perfect standard. And that's the picture behind this verse. The third wonderful lesson about God's righteousness is in verse 24. It's given freely. Take note, it's not our faith that saves us. It's not a matter of screwing ourselves up into what Keller describes as an intense attitude of surrender or a state of certainty or confidence. Faith is rather the attitude of coming to God with empty hands, empty of any so-called achievements, simply to receive gratefully his gift to us. Remind you of anyone? The tax collector, of course. The Pharisee had hands so full of all he'd done, he was in no position to receive anything from God. Our belief is not the reason for our salvation. If we think that, we'll stop looking at Christ and focus on ourselves and on our faith. Faith is just the means by which we can receive salvation. It's not the cause of our salvation. And if you make the mistake of thinking your faith is what qualifies you, you will be tempted to boast. But verse 27 says the gospel leaves no room for boasting. Fourthly and finally, Paul is clear about what we must have faith in. It's Christ's death on the cross. For there he paid our ransom to free us from all our failures and sins. On the cross, Christ reconciled us to our Heavenly Father. So, verse 25, our righteousness comes through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And a reminder that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 22 tells us there's no difference. It's the same for all of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed it up like this. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself, no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. 
he looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. So, having considered the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector and second Paul's conclusion in Romans 3, how we may have a relationship with God, I want to consider, thirdly, the Reformation rediscovered justification by faith, because that's what we've been talking about. And for this section, I'm very indebted to a little booklet by Graham Tomlin called Luther and His World. And we've got some copies there, uh, gifted by the late Georgette Butcher, in fact. So these are free. Luther and His World, Graham Tomlin, who's Bishop of Kensington. It was Luther who discovered that Scripture offered only one way to establish a relationship with God. He had been a devout Augustinian monk. He had tried everything in order to please God, prayer, daily worship five times a day, and service. But he discovered that seeking to be justified by works, his actions and deeds led to a sense of failure. Furthermore, it just added to a feeling of anxiety. You could never know for certain whether you'd done enough to be accepted by God. You were left in a constant state of uncertainty. And he discovered the one way of establishing a relationship with God when he grappled to understand a single verse. Would you turn back in Romans to chapter 1, verse 17? Chapter 1, verse 17 reads as follows. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In his 1545 autobiographical fragment, he recorded this. I meditated day and night on those words. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of God. In other words, by faith. This immediately made me feel as if I had been born again and entered through open doors into paradise itself. So, and by contrast to the medieval church, we said, no, no, you have to pile up enough merit. We'll tell you what to do. He discovered that that whole edifice was built on sand. And, of course, this runs entirely counter to our natural inclination, our desire to impress God with a list of good deeds and acts. But God treats all this as worthless, and that can be devastating to anyone who doesn't appreciate what God is really offering and his invitation. Basically, we like to patronize God a bit. If I do some things for you, you will do some things for me. No, no. We got it entirely wrong. We couldn't be more wronger. If we come with our hands full of our goodness like the Pharisee, we can't receive anything. It's only if we come empty-handed like the tax collector that we can accept the gift of Christ's perfect conduct and standard for ourselves. We don't have to fret about whether our good works are sufficient. God simply asks for our faith, our trust in what he offers us. Listen to these profound words from Luther again. I'm going to repeat them. We are not made righteous by doing righteous works, but rather 
we do righteous works by being made righteous. We're not made righteous by doing righteous works, but rather we do righteous works by being made righteous. Well, how is this relevant to you and me today? It's my final point. Many are not troubled in the way that Luther was. His 16th century doctrinal struggles with religious rules appear very foreign and alien, very distant. But are they? Don't we live under different but equally strict rules and standards? For example, the fashion industry judges what constitutes beauty. Business sets standards of success that must be achieved. The sporting world celebrates only winners. What if you don't measure up to those standards? Isn't the plague of low self-esteem and poor self-worth in the young and teenagers the result? You never achieve it. It's always just ahead of you, like a carrot in front of a donkey. Do you remember those pictures? You have it on a stick and you hold it in front of the donkey. Never gets it. Depression in children and young adults is occurring at increasing rates in in our country. We are not at ease. And isn't it because they are judged negatively by their peers? That's the whole thing about the media. Are you befriended? Whereas the doctrine of justification by faith says our true human worth is not as a result of our ability or our personal success, it lies simply in this, the fact that we are loved by our Creator. In a moment in this communion service, we take bread and the wine. Incidentally, you're all welcome to receive that if you do in your own church. Those are the symbols of how much you are loved. So Luther in 1518 wrote this. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they're attractive. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they're attractive. Our worth is unshakable because our value is entirely outside ourselves, founded in God's love, demonstrated by the gift of Jesus. So, it's wonderful. Whether you're in work or unemployed, physically fit, unwell, from an ethnic majority or minority, minority, our worth remains exactly the same. We may, like Luther, face times of despair caused by feeling incapable or inadequate for one reason, but our ultimate sense of value can never be taken away. And because that is the case, it's the foundation of a secure self-image. Who are we? We are loved by God. Yes, we have to take the first step of facing up to who we really are, just like the tax collector when we come before God. God's light reveals our self-centeredness, our lack of love and concern for others. He sees inside us as he told his disciples in Mark 7, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from inside and defile a person. 
I don't think anybody here can say, I, none of those apply to me. And as Tomlin puts it in his little booklet, this is not pleasant middle-class religion which assumes everyone is good and nice and refuses to look beneath the surface. If we build a sense of self-worth based on our personal virtues, that will indeed be a foundation built on sand. And it will not withstand storms of despair, self-doubt, even evil, as is clear from Luther's testimony. God wants us to build on the rock-like firm foundation of accepting his righteousness freely offered in Christ and invites simply our faith, our trust in him. There is no other way. It's faith alone. Now, if you come into the vicarage, you may see a photograph and may be slightly surprised of my wife, Trisha, and myself on a ski slope. I have to say, I think we look rather dashing. It was taken a few years ago. Now, the ski runs are very well marked with posts. If you go off-piste, you can get yourself into serious trouble and even danger. People rather like to say, I'm going off-piste. I always want to say, you fool. If the church ignores, forgets, or turns away from this marker post of faith alone, it will find itself in serious trouble. If you find yourself in future in a church which does not believe this, leave it immediately. It will be traveling in the wrong direction. Moreover, even more seriously, it will be leading others to go back to that dead end of believing we can make ourselves acceptable to God by offering a list of personal, moral, and spiritual achievements. And surely in a world which operates still with strict, unachievable standards... We condemn all generations, but most especially the rising generation, to lives of imprisonment and despair if we fail to tell them that there's another way to live. And it's a way of hope. It's called the doctrine of justification by faith, faith alone. But at the heart of it is that our worth is incalculable. incalculable. God loves us and simply waits for our response to him. It's a free gift. It's unshakable, it's unchangeable. The foundation of Christ's perfect righteousness. And our part is to take him at his word and put our trust in his gift. And that is the safe way. That's the only way. And it's very, very good news for a world whose only message is to produce despair, low self-esteem and poor self-worth. And you've heard it today. It changed the world 500 years ago. The Church of England is a reformed church. It says in its formularies that it believes this. But we are challenged, every church is challenged to teach it, to believe it, to live it, and to pass it on. Because it's such good news. Will we pass it on? Let's pray.
I'm conscious that I've said a lot. It's a profound thing 